really, you still heard optimism, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, so it was me. I'm yeah, okay. so uh, <laughs> we're doomed. So, I, yeah, we're, we're doomed. Uh, I've been way more optimistic in the past, I can say that. So I've, I feel like I've hit rock bottom uh, with the last meeting in August in terms of optimism. Hello, and welcome to Exploring Digital Spheres. Today's episode is all about autonomous weapon systems. One way to define what makes weapons autonomous is the fact that they can function without human intervention. Now, Thomas Bechle and Frank Sauer are speaking about the difficulties in finding agreement on how to regulate these systems and how far advanced these systems actually are. Here is their conversation. Welcome to this edition. My name is Thomas Beckler and today's guest is Frank Sauer, who is a researcher at the Bundeswehr University in Munich that is part of the German Armed Forces. He's a political scientist and an expert on questions of um, international security and technology, including areas such as nuclear weapons, terrorism, cybersecurity, and the use of robots and so-called artificial intelligence in military contexts, very often referred to as autonomous weapons systems. And this is exactly the topic of today's conversation. Good morning, Frank Sauer. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, two very obvious questions uh, right at the beginning. The first one, what are autonomous weapon systems? And the second, what is being done to regulate or even ban them? So what are autonomous weapon systems? Autonomous weapon systems select and engage targets without human intervention. This is how the uh, U.S. Directive 3000.09, issued by the uh, Pentagon in 2012, uh, defines what an uh, autonomous weapon system is or what makes any weapon system really autonomous. It is a very minimalist, functionalist definition. It says... It needs to do something, the machine, rather than the human, and this is what makes it autonomous. So that's important to note because it is, it is not uh, trying to define what autonomous weapon systems are by naming, listing, you know, uh, specific characteristics like it's, it's powered by AI or stuff like that. It is basically technology agnostic. You don't need any, you know, highfalutin technology to make it autonomous. In fact, we've had weapon systems that under that definition can be called autonomous for 30 years. So let me give you an example. For instance, in the, for terminal defense um, against incoming munitions, such as you know, uh, a cruise missile or uh, some sort of rocket or a mortar shell, we've had systems for 30 years or so that can track a target of that sort and select it for engagement and then fire and shoot it down without a human pushing the not the proverbial, but the literal button in this case. So we've had this autonomy, this autonomous functionality in specific niche areas in the military. But it is, of course, with the advent of whatever artificial intelligence is, you know, these, this you know, a broad spectrum of technologies that we you know, cover with this you know, more or less helpful term of artificial intelligence. So it is with all these new technologies which uh, function as an enabler uh, in military contexts, that, that we now see that this autonomous functionality, that the machine selecting and engaging targets, um, rather than the human being doing it, 
is uh, yeah, proliferating basically into all sorts of other military contexts. So we can now basically imagine almost any kind of weapon system being autonomous or being made autonomous even by retrofitting them um, um, with you know, new technologies such as image recognition or what have you. So any boat, any tank, any plane, any submarine uh, could potentially have this autonomous functionality going into the future. And this, of course, raises all sorts of interesting and also some deeply troubling questions. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, not really a very reassuring thought to uh, think of any sort of boat or vessel as uh, uh, potentially an autonomous uh, weapon. So that the obvious second question I just asked, what is currently being done to uh, regulate these types of weapon systems? Right, so... <clears throat> If, if I were to start at the very, very beginning, um, then uh, it all started with basically the scientific community. So that's an interesting element of the story, I guess, that the people who first noted this were actually the scientists working in the field, like the roboticists and the, the AI people in universities. And you can go back as early as 2007, maybe, or even earlier than that, where the first op-eds you know, started to pop up in papers where you know, professors were saying... Um, we, we're developing in our labs all these new technologies, and I, you know, stumbled across a, a plan by by some military where they're, you know, sketching out a future 10, 15 years ago, and it turns out they want to use all these technologies that we're developing, doing this and that, and you know, I think they have a very wrong idea about these technologies and what they can and cannot do, and uh, so there's there's trouble basically coming down the pike. So that's at least 10 or even 15 years ago that that goes uh, that far back. And then around 2009, 2010, um, this started to basically coagulate in, in some... So for instance, that's a group that I'm a member with. It's, it's called the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, which is just a network of scientists around the globe. And there's There's AI people in there, roboticists in there, political scientists like myself, international lawyers, ethicists, who all kind of came across this issue and thought, hmm, we need to look closer at this. And mind you, this is when we were talking about drones, so remotely piloted vehicles, unmanned systems. These people back then basically saw the next step and thought, oh, what happens when we take the human out of the loop? Oh, algorithms will drive these things. What does that mean? And... Um, It only really uh, started to gain traction in, in outside the academic community and outside of, you know, obscure uh, scientific journals, basically, when uh, Human Rights Watch, the big human rights NGO, caught wind of this. And over a pretty short period, basically, of intensive talks and pondering, decided, we think this is the next big thing. This is what we need to be looking at in terms of humanitarian disarmament. And 2013 was when the so-called campaign to stop killer robots, um, you know, was formed for the first time. And uh, in 2014, uh, they managed to get this on the agenda at the United Nations in Geneva in a forum that is called Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons. It's a bit weird. Um, I'll use the acronym CCW from now, from now on because everybody knows it as the CCW. And the CCW is supposed to regulate conventional weapons, so not nuclear, biological, chemical, conventional weapons, which may be deemed, um, you know, in superfluously injurious or problematic under the law. And then 
regulate them, ban them, do whatever you know the international community deems necessary to deal with these weapons. And this is where we are having talks about this. We've had talks for, what is it now, five years? Um, since 2014, it started in a, in a more or less informal setting and experts were there, you know, giving testimony, talking to the diplomats about the technology and what they see will, de will be developing. And then um, three years in, it moved to another format. It's getting very technical now, which is called the Group of Governmental Experts. And now it's a bit more formal and there's like a regular UN setting. So we have translation there um, and it's, everything is documented. And this is where, at least for a while, everybody um, hoped that you know, some regulation would come into being. I've been there from the get-go, basically from 2014, not at every meeting, but I go at least once a year. And I have to say, um, I'm fairly frustrated at this point because right now it seems like this process is not going anywhere because, well, to put it very short, the the great powers are not really interested, interested in, in any form of regulation. So Russia, also the US, uh, to some extent China, um, they all, with very different you know, uh, rationales, uh, are stepping on the brakes. And so, um, at least for the immediate future, I don't see the UN uh, coming up with any sort of binding legal instrument that would regulate this issue uh, at the global stage. So we will see for instance, what the EU maybe can can do about this, or what NATO will do, or what even individual you know nation states can do. Uh, you could even extend that list, not just the great powers like China and the US or, or Russia, but also Australia, the United Kingdom, um, and and Israel um, are, are responsible um, in in part at least that these uh, negotiations have. Uh, um, have stalled. And my impression, um, and I think this impression is shared by, by many, and I'm, I'm now curious to know if, if you share that um, idea too, um, is about um, terminology. So yeah. to really find a common ground, what are we even talking about when we're talking about autonomous weapon systems? You, uh, right at the beginning, gave a definition, but this definition, um, if, if, um, if I'm not mistaken, is not shared by everybody. And my impression was that um, this uh, sort of termin terminolo terminological um, problem is being used in a strategical manner by states uh, to, for example, claim, well, we don't have autonomous weapons because we use a different definition of what an autonomous weapon is. So definitions aren't that trivial in this context, are they? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is definitely at this point a big part of, uh, of the issue and why, uh, in fact, the talks are not really advancing. I would challenge the notion that there is no agreed-upon uh, definition. Uh, I think, in fact, what I uh, quoted at the very beginning, this you know, very lean, um, minimalist concept of an autonomous weapon system is a weapon system that selects and engages targets without human intervention. This is, in fact, um, widely accepted at this point. It is accepted in the scientific community uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, which is, of course, a very, very important player when we're talking about international human uh, 
uh, international humanitarian law, so the, the laws that govern war, the ICRC is the guardian of this body of, of law. And it's, of course, very important what they say to any issue really in this, in this field. And they have adopted a, a definition that is like this, or it is, it is just refining it in a very specific point. It's saying something about the uh, critical functions of the weapon systems, and the critical functions are the selection and the engagement of targets. So you can have an, a, a weapon system that is autonomous in terms of, for instance, navigation. That's fine. But as soon as you start, as it starts selecting and engaging targets, the ICRC says, this is where we need a human back in the loop. We need meaningful human control or any form of human control. We're still having a debate about what the what the human control should be like. Should it be meaningful, appropriate, whatever. But I would challenge this notion that there's zero agreement on the definition. That that is, in fact, not the case. I would even say we have even advanced the debate even further. And I think it is very wise to do so. Um, as I said, this functionalist definition is different from, you know, trying to define um, it, trying to define what we're dealing with in terms of specific listing, specific characteristics. So this is how arms control used to work in the in the past. You would say, now what is a landmine? A landmine is it does this and that, and it looks like this, and it has a trigger, and it's victim activated, and then you you, you have a pretty clear description of what it is that you want to regulate or ban or do whatever. Now here, there, we will never have <clears throat> categories of weapon systems. As I said, basically, theoretically speaking, almost any weapon system in the future can have this autonomous functionality. So we're talking about regulating a function, right? Rather than categories of weapons. We can't say you can only have a thousand autonomous weapon systems. It, it's pointless because you can make it autonomous basically with just a software update or something like that. Or Clicking a clicking a box in your in your user interface. So we we need a qualitative rather than quantitative approach. And so where the debate is actually going at this point is that people start, and that is I think the right way to go. People start, you know, to look at what the human element should be in all of this. What is the human being supposed? to be doing still in warfare in the 21st century. How do we want the human-machine relationship to look like? Mm -hmm. uh, before we, we um, start right. talking about uh, this, I, I still briefly want to come back to the question of, of um, defining uh, mm -hmm. these, um, well, you said functions, not systems. Yeah. Um, but still, one very recent uh, definition by the Chinese delegation to the CCW that you just That's mentioned. That's a very special one. Uh, it's a very special one. Um, it was, I think, drafted in 2018. And it includes points such as, so what, sh what are uh, autonomous weapon systems? That's the uh, position paper by the Chinese government experts. It needs to be lethal. It needs to be autonomous. It needs uh, to be impossible to terminate it. And I found that uh, last one to be extremely interesting. Evolution, meaning that through interaction with the environment, the device can learn autonomously, expand its functions and capabilities in a way exceeding human expectations. So there's no way to terminate the device and it needs to evolve and learn. So we have obvious uh, metaphors um, coming from, well, a human intelligence. Yeah. Um, and this is um, the official um, position uh, paper. So we're not talking about the autonomy of functions here, but um, sort of the autonomy of the system itself. But you say it's a very special. Yeah, it is. 
It's very special because it left everybody very confused. I mean, look again at these five points. The first two points are basically banal. So we're talking about lethal autonomous weapon systems, and point one is it needs to be lethal, and point two needs to be it needs to be autonomous. I mean, duh. <laughs> and then we've got three more points that are frankly ridiculous. I mean, no military in the world at least not in its right mind, would ever field a weapon system that it can never terminate, <laughs> never get back, and which will basically behave, and that's what they're saying in the fifth point, it will behave in ways that you cannot uh, foresee. And that is obviously absurd. I mean, this sort of weapon system would be clearly uh, illegal under the existing you know, body of, of, of law. So... As I said, I mean, China is playing a very special role uh, in Geneva. I don't know, you know, how far we really want to go into that, but um, they they are very confusing to the rest uh, of of the people in the room. Uh, they have called for a ban on the use of autonomous uh, weapon systems that, you know, had everybody on the edge of their seats. Uh, then, then you know. Suddenly, this was kind of forgotten, so they're not talking about this anymore. Uh, so it's very unclear where to put them. And um, I'm obviously I'm not a diplomat, but I, but I have had diplomats tell me that this is uh, the way the Chinese play these games. I mean, they're very good at smoke screens and you know leaving everybody confused in these international fora. Um, so I would not necessarily put too much weight on on, on the Chinese definition that they put forward. Just to paraphrase a little bit what you were just um, uh, saying, which is sort of sketching also a way forward um, mm. f from, from here. So by defining the functions of these weapons, so target selection and engagement, uh, that could be a way um, forward to sort of define uh, the, the role humans still need to play Uh, in, in these contexts in terms of responsibility and also, of course, uh, legal accountability. And at the same time, if we use this hopefully agreed upon um, definition, autonomous or automatic weapons rather have been around for decades. For example, the, the phalanx system, mm -hmm. which is a defensive um, system that can automatically detect and destroy incoming uh, weapons. It's been around since the 1980s. So with this approach, uh, we've had autonomous weapons for decades and after decades are now in discussions to regulate these types of weapons. Is, is, is that a correct summary? Absolutely, yeah. And it, I mean, that is confusing to many people, which is um, why there's a very, very common um, you know, attempt to delineate between automatic and autonomous. And you were also, I think, using uh, the term automatic. Talk to the technical people At the end of the day, there is no clear distinction. It's not like we can make this clear distinction between what's automatic and what's autonomous. The, the, they, are, they are quite fuzzy, these terms, and, um, and I don't really think we need to. There's just no need to say the defensive systems, we call them automatic, so they're not you know, by, by accident getting you know, regulated or anything because we're, we have now this debate uh, about autonomy. No, no, it's okay. We, we recognize... The selection engagement of targets is done by a machine. Is it a problem in the case of phalanx? No. I mean, there are, of course, issues with these weapon systems. But again, we've had these for 30 years. And so we've learned. I mean, there's confirmation bias, right? So, you're, so the operator's is sitting um, uh, in front of the screen and the machine says, that's a target 
we need to fire in the next three seconds. So these usual things of human machine uh, uh, relation uh, that we've we've been we've been dealing with. Uh, for instance, uh, in in the body of research on automation, also in factories and wh wherever we've got automation for 50 years or so. So. That's actually a good thing. The, the fact that we've realized that ah, we've had this actually around us. It's just now that we've seen that now that we can do it in all these other areas that it, that we're seeing that specific problems arise from this. It's actually a good thing to know that it's not completely new. We can draw on so much knowledge that is already out there to get a good handle on on what we're dealing with. So again, I would say take take car manufacturers, right? So the autonomous vehicle if that ever happens hopefully it will but might take a while anyway so they have got these five levels of autonomy right so uh, i think it starts with zero or don't don't quote me on this but zero would be like no no assistive systems in in the car whatever like your car the ford model t basically and level five would be there's there's not even a steering wheel in there anymore so you couldn't even interfere with what the vehicle is doing if you even if you wanted to right and you can imagine easily imagine something of that nature to also apply in military contexts and say okay what is it that we're dealing with what kind of weapon system are we operating which targets are we engaging with this and again phalanx um, a defensive system that is designed and only used specifically for shooting down incoming, you know, rockets, for instance. Yeah, as I said, if, if it's supervised and if it's only, you know, flipped to automatic or autonomous mode, whatever you want to call it at the end of the day, for, you know, brief periods of time, sure, have it, a level, have it a, as a level five system. Have the machine do everything to protect human life. But in other uh, contexts, other weapon systems, other targets, as soon as human life is endangered, you have to dial down the autonomy. And the, the human being has to step in again. And you can maybe only have uh, autonomy which is level three or two, where the machine is, for instance, you know, selecting targets and giving the human being a clearer, field of, uh, clearer view of the battlefield and helping with decision-making. But the decision, at the end of the day, has to be with the human. Mm -hmm. um, But again, definitions also in this scenario are, are crucial, right? So we're no longer trying to now define the, the weapon system, um, but we look at specific functions in specific contexts, and all of a sudden it becomes a question of defining a specific context. And I would assume that uh, defining a context, so what was a necessary thing to do in a certain battlefield situation, um, that can be very, very contested by different uh, sort of sides um, uh, on that battlefield, if, 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 uh, if, if you want to keep that image. So um, we kind of delegate the problem now away from the technology to the contexts of the technology and try to find sort of a categorization of the context, um, which is also not very easy to achieve, is it? That is, of course, true. But um, on the other hand, I mean, international uh, humanitarian law is not a very um, exact science, <laughs> right? So we've got basically three main rules in there, and they, that's distinction, um, proportionality, and caution, right? So distinction means I have to make a distinction between who's a combatant, who's a civilian. I cannot endanger or I cannot target civilians. I have to target combatants. Proportionality means I can only use military force 
and, and violence to a degree that is necessary to achieve my military goal. And I cannot go above and beyond that. So civilian infrastructure or civilians might get, you know, hurt, even killed. But that's okay if, if the violence that is applied is not, you know, disproportionate to what's happening. That's the, you know, so-called collateral damage. And then there's this thing called caution under attack, which means as a commander, I have to, while the attack is going, do everything I can to keep it within the these two lanes, basically, distinction and um, proportionality. The international lawyers out there will kill me for this. I butchered this probably, but okay. The idea is, I guess, I, the rough outline is clear. So, and now let's look at this, for instance, proportionality. What's proportional, right? What is proportional? So you have to, say, destroy that bridge. What do you do? Drop a nuclear weapon on there? It'll most certainly destroy the bridge. I'm not an expert. Yeah. I don't know, maybe. I mean, it'll, 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 it'll most certainly destroy the bridge, but it also might you know, flatten the village, which is right next to it. So that's obviously the two of us, we could probably agree, nah, this is probably you know, way too much, and this is not a proportionate use of, of military force. But... You know, what else? I mean, what is, what is the right weapon in the right context to achieve the military goal? That is, it is very, very tough. And it takes seasoned commanders and people with experience and with judgment to make these calls. And um, first of all, it's, I think it's a complete, you know, uh, fallacy to think that we can automate any of this anytime soon. That's number one. So we have to keep the human in there anyway. Uh, in my mind. Otherwise, we run the risk of weapon systems immediately doing things that would run against international humanitarian law because there's no way you, you can calculate something like this proportionality judgment. So that's number one. But it's also that we have to live with the fact that these are quite fuzzy terms, but we've, we've dealt with this in international law for decades now. And it's, it's, you know, of course, war is still extremely terrible, but we've got these rules and it's better to have them rather than not to have them. And uh, so I would say yes, which takes us back to the to the autonomy and the question of you know human machine interrelation in this. Is it an exact science? Is it very specific? Um, can we basically write a big manual which will cover all the cases you know into the future forever? Of course not. But we will give we we'll have rules and regulations, and the military people on the ground will have tactics, techniques, procedures, they will know how to operate a weapon system in a specific context. That's what military people are trained for. Actually, militaries are very good at these things. They've, they like rules, they give themselves rules, and they try to stick to the rules. So, yes, I mean, it will be fuzzy, but it would be um, way better than just you know having this continue in a completely unregulated a manner that could get us into all sorts of hot water. So um, if you look at the scientific literature and the, the expert committee, uh, committees working on these things, like the aforementioned International Committee on the um, International Committee for Robot Arms Control or the International Panel on Regulation of Autonomous Weapons or the ICRC um, or Article 36, which is an NGO doing important uh, work in this field, Everybody who's really throwing serious brain power at this is sort of converging in this area. This is where things are moving in terms of developing uh, our thoughts on this. 
It's really about context and the human-machine relation and the question which function is performed by the machine and which by the human. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've talked about international law, but I also want to raise the, well, the point of uh, ethics here a bit. Uh, so what is your stance um, on that? Well, I do have a pretty clear view on this, but I think I fear it's a very European and um, probably even very, very German view on this. So I see um, a future where we don't have any regulation on this and where autonomy is um, in an unregulated manner fielded in all sorts of weapon systems on the battlefield. I see this uh, as highly problematic, especially from an ethical point of view, because I think that delegating this decision of taking a human life from a human away to a machine, to an algorithm operating in, in a computer system, is infringing on the human dignity of the person that is getting killed, right? So to me, it is very much not only a question of international humanitarian law, it's a question of human rights, of the right to life, and especially of, um, as I said, it's a, probably a very German perspective on this, of human dignity, which is, of course, in Germany enshrined in, you know, Article 1 of our basic law of our constitution, where it says that, you know, it puts human dignity above, as a basic principle, above all else almost, right? And so I think, yes, we do owe it to the people we kill in war, our fellow human beings, even if we kill them, and even if we kill them, you know, completely in a totally legal manner. I mean, people get killed in war, and as a combatant, that's basically what can happen. But we owe it to them, these people that we kill, that we notice their death and that we notice that they die as fellow human beings and we, that we've brought them to death. And if we don't do that anymore, and if we decouple ourselves and our uh, consciousness and our conscience and our societies completely from war and from killing in war, I don't think this is, um, is a good idea, and I think we're, we're heading down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. So a, a consequence would be that this question of um, proportionality uh, would never uh, be able to, well, be decided upon by uh, a machine, right? So it's uh, th that final call, is it a proportionate um, act? That final call would need to be made... Um, by a human rather than a machine, right? Never say never. So um, I, would, I would agree. I mean, and again, I'm a political scientist, so I don't have a technical background, but I mean, I've been doing this for more than a decade now and I've you know, hung around with uh, enough um, you know, computer science people, AI people, roboticists, and you know, they tell me um, this, these kinds of you know, judgments... We don't, we don't even know how we would do it. We're so far away from this in terms of what we can do with machine learning and stuff like that. Uh, that, um, yeah, it looks like probably never, but, I mean, who knows? Like, who knows? Maybe 20 years from now, we've, you know, made incredible, um, you know, uh, advances uh, with regard to AI and we're close to some sort of general intelligence and the machines can, you know ponder the same questions that we ponder and make the same judgments that we make. And so maybe you could automate it. I don't know, maybe. As I said, I'm deeply skeptical about this. I think it's AI. This is a, clearly a different conversation, but I think many, many things are extremely overhyped uh, in terms of what, what is actually going on there. And the fact that it's basically it's, it's just you know statistics on steroids is 
you know, deeply confusing to many people. And it's also a problem in this whole context of AI in the military debate because, you know, some people just, you know, seem to think that you sprinkle some magic AI on it and some on all of a sudden all kinds of military problems go away. This is just not how it's going to go down. But, um, yeah, I've, I'm fairly hesitant to say never. So I would say for the for the clearly for the foreseeable future, yes, there will be extreme legal trouble and all these IHL judgments, for instance, about pro proportionality probably cannot be automated even if we wanted to. But never say never, which is why I think the ethical point of view is the kind of like an Archimedean point for the entire debate. The question really is, even if we could, even if you could uh, build the, you know, the perfectly functioning IHL compliant tip-top immaculate killer robot, which never makes any mistakes, performs better than any human being, always within the boundaries of the law. Perfect, right? So as a thought experiment, even if you could do that, should we? And my answer would be no, because we should not be delegating this decision. Um, when we were talking about um, the CCW uh, in uh, Geneva, uh, maybe it was just me, but I heard a little bit of optimism coming from 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 you. Um, so we're having this conversation in September of 2019. Um, how do you think these talks will continue? Really, you still heard optimism, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. So it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, okay. So <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're doomed. Uh, I've been way more optimistic in the past. I can say that. So I've, I feel like I've hit rock bottom uh, with the last meeting in August, in terms of optimism. Um, we are now at a point where there's barely agreement about, um, you know, continuing talks on some sort of fluffy collection of language which they deem maybe a what they call normative framework which would not be binding in any way so yeah i mean in terms of being optimistic uh, i wouldn't say i'm definitely no longer optimistic about the ccw in geneva producing uh, in the foreseeable future anything that would be you know binding in any meaningful sense so yes, there might be two, maybe four years down the road, there might be some sort of document, which is like, here's 10 good ideas about how to use or not to use autonomy in weapon systems. That would be nice, uh, but it's not really what I think and what many people think we need. And it's 29 countries at this point who, who have come out and said, so we were, we were listing a couple of countries before, like a handful who are stepping on the brakes, but there's at least five times as uh, many states who are saying, we need new international law now. We need binding, a binding treaty where everybody signs on and where we prevent this before we have the same trouble that we had with nuclear, biological, or chemical weapons, where first, you know, something terrible had to happen and then the international community thought, oh, I think we should regulate this and maybe, you know, have this around. And... Um, and I can easily see, you know, more more countries, you know, adopt, uh, adopting this position of saying, no, no, we need binding new international law now. But um, yeah, with the big players are not willing, and um, I, I'm trying to coin a term. Uh, so I've, I've 
this is another podcast where I'm trying to, uh, you know, get this term into the conversation. But I'm, I've been I've, so let's listen up. Yeah, listen up, everyone. So I call it the arms control winter, right? So wink, wink. We've had winters in AI where basically there was zero interest, zero funding, zero political momentum on on the issue. We have a similar thing with arms control now, right? Where um, all the the existing treaties uh, and regimes are in deep trouble. Some of them are eroding. The Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, for instance, has stopped existing uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we're in deep trouble with the stuff that we have and the existing treaties and the existing body of, of, of law and the existing regimes. And we're not getting anything new. Not for space, not for cyberspace, not for autonomy, nothing. Right? So... Uh, in terms of arms control, we're in a in a yeah uh, in a tough position, uh, and this will probably last for a while because I mean, in this era of Trump, Putin, and and she, there's just not this is not the vibe <laughs> that that you're getting that more <laughs> that we're getting any sort of meaningful arms control in the in there's not much space for rational thought in there. I, I, I agree, right, right. and I would I would want to um, I would love to conclude uh, on a on a lighter note, but I'm afraid that with a topic uh, like that, it, it's it's hardly um, possible. Imagine my life. Uh, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the the one last question I, I I have doesn't so much concern the highly sophisticated autonomous weapon uh, based on artificial intelligence, uh, but a risk that is coming from the cheap, easy to build in large quantities rather stupid weapon that is that is potentially also a, a huge danger maybe even the the bigger one yeah so we're definitely not ending on a positive note then um because i mean you're of course right um as i said i'm fairly technologically agnostic about the entire thing so again we've had autonomy um in the 80s where ai really wasn't where it is today so it's clear that, yes, AI obviously is a very, very powerful enabling you know, tool in, in this entire uh, autonomy affair. But um, um, you don't have to have a very sophisticated system to create an autonomous weapon. It's clearly not sci-fi or a future discussion. In 2018, in summer of 2018, for instance, Kalashnikov um, presented a, a gun turret coupled with an image recognition system. And, I mean, boom, there, there you have it. You know, that's, it's easy. Like, you give it some sort of, uh, you know, specification of what is the kind of target that you want the image, to, uh, the image recognition system to, to, to recognize and then pull the trigger. So something that's shaped like a car. Okay, I found it. Pulling the trigger. Boom. But so it's easy to build and it's clearly, it would be clearly illegal, you know, because the, this sort of system would never be able, it would maybe, maybe in, you know, the most uh, perfect circumstances be able to distinguish a combatant from a civilian, but I would not bet on it, but it would most probably or no, most certainly Certainly not recognized. For instance, is uh, someone or the combat? Yeah, meaning is 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 a, is the combatant um, wounded? Is he out of battle? Is it illegal to now fire uh, upon him or her? All these subtleties and the nuances and the judgments on the battlefield, the system would not be capable to do any of this. 
So we are there, technologically speaking, it's clear, and all the legal trouble and the ethical trouble and the, and the issues in terms of security and instability in the world are already here, which is why it's so important that more people learn about this and that we get some sort of rules uh, of the road, basically, um, wherever we get them from, maybe the UN, maybe some other fora. Mm -hmm. and, and even if, if all the state actors, as political actors, would agree to regulate, even ban um, these, these weapons... Then you've got non-state actors, yeah. And there's really not a lot you can do about them. them. But, I mean, most certainly not producing the, this function, right? Not the weapons, but the function, you know, not proliferating this throughout the world, uh, you know, um, like crazy, would certainly help... Uh, in terms of it not diffusing tomorrow to even non-state actors. But yeah, I mean, clearly, in terms of terrorism and stuff like that, I'm, I'm actually fairly surprised that uh, not more things are happening in terms of, um, you know, drones against critical infrastructure, for instance. And yeah, you can easily imagine all kinds of shenanigans getting way more destructive uh, with autonomy in the mix, right? So you can have 10, 20... Uh, systems operating autonomously doing you know nasty stuff so yeah well uh that is that hooray for the future <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much uh for again emphasizing the relevance of uh, these uh, questions and thank you very much for the conversation thank you for having me that were thomas bechle and frank sauer more on their research you can find in the notes of the show For other events and research projects organized by the Humboldt Institute, visit hiig.de. In the next episode, I have a conversation with HIG researcher Teresa Zuge on digital disobedience. As always, if you enjoyed this episode and you find yourself 20 minutes wiser about the internet, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. For now, this was Exploring Digital Spheres. Catch you on the flip side.